Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We continue to work through the book of Ephesians. The Lord wills will be in Ephesians through the month of March. And then after that, we'll be starting a series in the book of Daniel, which I am excited to to do. So if you want to begin reading ahead to find out all the spoilers before we get there, by all means do that. Daniel is a it's an interesting book, and I'm looking forward to, to teaching through it. But today we're going to be in verses 22 through 33 in Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue to look at the idea of Christian marriage. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, over and over in it, we are reminded that there is a redeemer. That we have not been left without a redeemer. That from the ages past, that the plan of God was that there would be a redeemer for the people of God who desperately needed forgiveness of their sins and that needed a righteousness not of their own. And that is what you bring us. So Lord, as we come to your holy word, help us. Because we are a people that still wrestle with the flesh still wrestle with that which we once were, and even sometimes, Lord, we still think that it's best. Change us. Transform us by the renewing of our minds as we open your word and we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as we again come to this passage, last week we looked at it and we're going to look at it again this week. It's, again, we kind of dealt with the beginning some of the cultural aspects concerning this passage in marriage. And when I think of much of the teaching that I received as a kid and even as a young adult concerning this text, a lot of it had to do with a 90s best-selling book called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And I'm not recommending that you go get that. In fact, I'm recommending quite the opposite. The book doesn't really even pretend to be a Christian book, yet... Uh, best, it was a bestseller in many Christian bookstores for years. I bet it's probably in the top 20 in some places still. Pastors were regularly referring to it. I remember even hearing about it at like youth conferences and church camps that I went to, that it was being used to, to teach the dichotomy of, of men and, and women. And that book, I believe, further entrenched cultural stereotypes that were there, and it gave us an out in a way, when it came to our responsibilities, our biblical responsibilities concerning the home. Because we could just say, well, this is just the way that I am. It became a lot easier to say, and I believe it worked further to divide the, um, or to increase the divide that was between men and women. That, that book didn't do something different than has been done since the beginning of time. We continue to talk about biblical marriage in the context of Ephesians 5. Again, we talked about the the lots of baggage that is associated with this topic in the church today. We tend to carry it around with us and pick up more and more as the church attempts more and more to adopt cultural and psychological truth and to blend it together 
with biblical truth as if that's okay. This is not a new phenomena at all. The church has been doing it for years, often swinging with the cultural pendulum, as it were, going from one extreme to another. On one extreme, we have man as a dominator and controller of his family, ruling with an iron fist and refusing to recognize the gifts and contributions of godly women. On the other, the man is passive, doing nothing, idly standing by while women lead all aspects of church life, including preaching and teaching. Both of these examples, biblically, are wrong. The problem isn't that we have an incorrect view of psychology or culture. The problem is sin. And since the fall of man, men and women have been at odds. We read about that state of sin and misery that we felt that we have fallen into in the shorter catechism today. Husband and wife have been at odds. Parents have been at odds with their children. As Paul comes to this portion of the letter in his church or in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he's built up this idea of recreation. The believer is made alive. In Christ Jesus our Lord. He's built up the idea that the church is a common community of believers and that the relationships define the Christian experience, that the Christian experience necessarily involves relationships with others. When he comes to this point of the book, he uses a particular relationship in order to drive home his point, and that is the Christian marriage, to show us the relationship that Christ has with his church. For us, this passage has become one of the most preached passages, and so, in in that same sentence, has become one of the most difficult passages to preach. We bring our stereotypes, we oftentimes bring a lot of hurt to this passage, we bring our own sin to this passage. And so as we come to it, I encourage you to pray that God will allow you, that will allow us as a church, as a congregation, to see it correctly and to use it to shape the way that we live. With that, we'll break it into three main ideas. First, husbands, love your wife. Second, wives, submit to your husbands. And third, Christians, honor God. So with that, let's look together at the text. Ephesians 5, chapter, or Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. <coughs> Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall... Leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Last week we looked primarily at the connection between Christ and His church and how the Christian marriage is just a type or just a picture of this relationship. We get that primarily from verse 32 in this passage that says, This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and His church. So this this whole idea of the Christian marriage really just refers to that. This is the idea that we'll be closing our time together today as we serves really as bookends of this particular Christian relationship. Today, as we look specifically at the marriage relationship, I think it's important for us to go back to the beginning, as we love to do around here, to understand where things went wrong. Man and woman are created in God's image and placed in the garden. They fell because of their because of their sin. Eve eating the forbidden fruit and then giving some to Adam, and with that, all mankind fell. The entire created order fell down around them. The original order of the family destroyed, as we alluded to last week. But I want to go back there, because a lot of our time is going to be spent using Genesis 3, verse 16. So turn with me there quickly, because we're going to look at Genesis 4 as well. And I believe that this verse is necessary to understanding Paul's instruction in Ephesians 5. Genesis 3.16. So just as a, up to this point, Adam and Eve have fallen. They've, they've done the thing that God said, do not do that. And the serpent was there. And in 15, he gives a pronouncement to the serpent, which is the first announcement of the gospel in Scripture. And then here in 16, he says this. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Some translations will say your desire should be for your husband. And it almost seems like there's a contradiction. How can one word mean opposite things? Well, there's a strange word here. And this is a whole other language that this book was originally written in. And so I think the best way to understand that is to look at another place that the word is used. And thankfully, we don't have to go very far to see that. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 7. In chapter 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel. And you guys know the story more than likely. Cain and Abel both brought offerings to the Lord. Abel, his offering was accepted. Cain's was not. And Cain felt some some jealousy, right? He felt some some uh, some upset about that. And the Lord says to him, verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Didn't we just have that exact same sentence? We did. So what's going on here? God is admonishing Cain and he explains sin's relationship to him by saying sin is crouching at the door. It's not like sin is waiting for him to come home like an excited dog, waiting for the master to come home. Its desire is contrary to you, is against you. 
but you must rule over it. You must master that sin. God's instructions here to Cain are very plain, right? Sin would seek to dominate you, but you must dominate it. And with sin, of course, it's perfectly sound that God would give that instruction to Cain in this way. But when God says the same thing about the marriage relationship in 3.16, he's talking about a struggle between man and woman. Her desire is against you. Why? Because of sin. They've just fallen in sin. Or her desire is for your place. To take you over. But you will dominate her. Again, this is not just a, this is not a, a good word. This is a kind of a tyrant sort of thing. Because rather than adhering to the created order of man being head, of woman being his helper, and the children being under both, Man and woman. Woman now wants to be head of the household. Man has to dominate. And the children cause pain to both. And without Christ, church, we would be stuck here. If you look at the world, sadly, if you look at the church, you see just this. The decay of the family. This isn't something that's been happening recently. It's been happening since the Garden of Eden in this very story that we read this morning. And the answer to us is the same answer in all of Scripture. Christ, who is right now making all things, including our marriages and our relationships, he's making them all new. Man back as head, woman back as his helper, children back in obedience. And that's why we have this instruction here in Ephesians chapter 5. Understand his instructions come from a place of moving the people of God back to that place where they were. Back to the garden even. Back to when our relationships were in order with God's intention. That brings us to the first point. Husbands, Love your wives. I'm going to talk about the instructions to husbands first because I think it provides a better context when we get to the instructions for the wife. And so look with me at verses 25 through 27 again of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wife or love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or without any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And we have been taught this, many of us have been taught this so many times in the church that we know what comes next, right? The pastors were about to say that we need to love our wives with a sacrificial kind of love and then we define that ourselves right we're like okay that means i need to spend a little extra time a little little extra energy to make sure that my wife has what she needs or we might even go to the other kind of extreme and we kind of take this macho bravado look at this verse and say well i'm willing to give my life for my wife and those things might be true But think about all of our studies as we have been all over the Bible 
in the last years that we have been together as a church. Think about our studies with God's relationship with his people. In fact, the whole Bible is about that, right? We have to know that Christ's love for the church can't be fully encapsulated by any sort of trite definition that we have of the word sacrificial. How did Christ love the church? We know in Romans 5 it tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for her. Like a good picture of this is in Isaiah chapter 54. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 54. There are lots of places I could have went for this. And I chose Isaiah 54 just because we had been in Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah is about God dealing with His people on so many levels. Over and over. And so in Isaiah 54, I'm going to look at verses 4 through 8. And as I read these verses, make your mind consider what we've just read in Ephesians 5. And even go back to Genesis 3.16 and kind of bring all that together as I read from Isaiah 54, 4-8. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, nor fear not, for you will not be ashamed, but not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will come, or you will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. But a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. What's going on here? This is the Lord coming back to His wife. Why does He have to do that? Is it because the Lord has done something bad and He's going to His wife in repentance? No. It's because over and over she turns to other gods. And yet He continues to love her anyway. The people of God, the covenant bride of God, the husband in this passage and all over Scripture, he is continuing to call her back to faithfulness, calling her back only to watch her fail again and again. God is being patient, long-suffering with His people, with the church. There's no giving up on her, though He had every reason to, right? Right? Just read the Old Testament, every single reason he had to give up on her. But he didn't. There was no getting tired of her ways and retreating to solitude by working a little too much or finding other things to do other than being around her. There's definitely no passivity in God's love for His people. His love represents a constant pursuit of her. A non-stop Pursuit to death on the cross. And this pursuit, again, has a stated purpose. Not just to bring her eternal life, yes, 
That has been accomplished by Christ on the cross. But also as we go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, any or any such thing. Christ's love for the church is a love that pursues the holiness of His bride at all costs. So if you go back to Genesis 3.16 and you see and you, can, and you pair it with that, that power struggle inside the fallen marriage, we are left then with what it means for a man to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Genesis 3.16 says that fallen man will rule over her in a domineering kind of way, which is the idea there is to seek to win the struggle, that there's going to be this struggle at home, right? And, and that the man has this. He's going to seek to win that. Yet, what do we see Christ doing with His church? There isn't any kind of winning going on other than Him winning their souls from sin and death. Rather, He gave His life for her even while she was yet her enemy or His enemy. Rather than winning the battle, He showed Mercy. We know this, right? As people, as all of his people, we know the mercy of God in our lives. We know that if he had been given, if we had been given thousands of chances, we would never have succeeded once and we would never have the chance to be sanctified as we read here. But our sanctification is independent on our ability to do the right thing ourselves. Our sanctification is up to God and He does just that even in spite of ourselves we are being made more and more to the likeness of Christ our Lord. For the man's relationship with his wife he must actively seek out her sanctification because the part of her that clings to her fallen nature to win the power struggle at home The Christian husband should love her anyway. And this isn't a kind of love or I love you, but I don't want to be around you, so I'm going to hide. It's a love that seeks her welfare, her sanctification before a holy God. Taking that side of her that wants to be the head of the house and leading her anyway, gently and with mercy. This isn't about power. It's not about power because if it were about power in our relationship with Christ, He would win every time. It's not, it's not about power in this case. It's about mercy. Showing her mercy until she is able to serve in her proper role in the family. Just as Christ shows us mercy as we more and more are able to serve Him better. And again, this is an active role, brothers in Christ. Passive man leaves his wife no choice but to lead. Then the passive man, rather than make a fuss, returns to his work, allows things to continue to spiral, hides, runs, adopts the popular mantra, if mama ain't happy, no one is, as a mantra for life, and his sole thing in life is making her happy which really isn't doing that. It's just satisfying her so that he can go and hide again. 
This is not a sacrificial love, just keeping things civil at home. The passive man says little and does little. He may be a totally nice guy, but he doesn't lead his home. And this is a sin against Christ, and this is a sin against the purity of his church. Because this is not only a problem in the homes, and you know it full well, this is a problem in churches as well. This is a call to the men of the church to love your wives as Christ loves his church. Yes, it is a sacrificial love, but it's not enough to simply say that. Because sacrifice, by definition, is active and it's on purpose. It doesn't have things happen to it. It happens to things. The man of God seeks the sanctification of his bride continually, even if he has to sacrifice his desire to keep things civil. Be a man that she will gladly be led by. And that brings us to the next point. Wives, submit to your husbands. Look with me at verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now there's no ambiguity here at all. There's no ambiguity at all in these verses. Wives are called to be subject to their husbands. The word here denotes a kind of ranking system, like think military or something of the sort. And just in case you want to do some sort of Greek gymnastics here, like I've heard several people try to do, we are given a very plain example of what this sort of subjection means there in verse 24. What does it mean? Well, as just as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So what does this mean? It basically means that the wife should accept the fact that her husband is head, and not only accept it, but acknowledge it actively, that the husband is the head of the household, and to do otherwise is an affront to God's ordained structure for the home. The children in the house are subject to both the parents equally, but between the parents, the husband leads and the wife follows. And understand as we say this, and as I say that, you know, you, you guys know me, I sound pretty blunt and a matter of fact a lot of times. There's no trace here of belittling in this text. There's no trace of demeaning one role or the other. Any, any, in, anything that we insert or any of that that we get from this text is something that we insert culturally upon the text. Man and woman are created equally by God, both equal image bearers of God. Woman is no less than man in any way, shape, or form at all. But in the home, the wife is to be subject to her husband. Why is this so difficult for the church today? Well, we read it already, why it's difficult for the church today. In Genesis 3.16, your desire will be contrary to your husband. So in the simplest way, being subject or submitting is simply acknowledging that because of sin, things were broken, upside down. Yet the view of the family includes the husband. The biblical view of the family includes the husband being the lead. Following God's plan for the family requires that the wife actively go against the desires of her flesh and choose to be subject to her husband. 
Again, not less than her husband. Don't hear me saying that, but acknowledging his God-given character as head of the household. No Christian has a problem with the idea at all of what we read in verse 24. No Christian has a problem with the church being subject to Christ. But for some reason, the wife being subject to the husband creates a problem because of sin. The part of us that doesn't like this directive from Paul is the part of us that hangs on to our flesh rather than following Christ our Lord. Now it is necessary that I give some caveats here because of our cultural distinctives and because of sin. It's necessary. There are a few things that this does not mean. It doesn't mean that a wife should must accept leadership from a domineering idiot. Christian wife should not subject herself to abuse or neglect of any kind. These things are abhorrent and they're wrong. Christian wife need not subject herself to sinful demands or unreasonable godly standards in the home. Again, sinful and wrong. Christian woman married or not is a daughter of the high king, represents the very image of God and should be treated as such. And another thing that this doesn't mean, that this is a relationship structure inside the family. Paul is quick to make sure that we see that here. Wives, submit to your own husbands. So a particular husband doesn't have the right to claim leadership over all wives, just his. This command from Paul doesn't give men the license to be jerks to women. Just making sure we understand that. Yet, a Christian wife has to act in such a way as to realize her man's tendencies, as we just talked about earlier. As alluded to earlier, unfortunately the church has adopted the phrase, if mama ain't happy, no one is. And we kind of chuckle, ha ha, that's so funny. Or we'll hear pastors like, well, i got to go ask my boss first. And it's kind of funny until it's really not. Actually, it's not really even funny. And just as the man isn't entitled to passivity that that statement entails, the woman is not entitled to happiness all the time. And while a godly Christian marriage should involve a man who is willing to lead, that may not always be the case, sisters in Christ. Just as a woman wants to rule her husband, a man will also mess this up. He will mess it up to one extreme or the other. He will be this domineering idiot or he will be this passive do-nothing. Those tend to be the extremes that we fall into. Just as the husband is called to lead a wife who doesn't always want to be led, the wife must choose to be led by a man who doesn't always want to lead. Again, this is not choosing to be sinned against by any means, and I'm not suggesting that, and of course you understand that. But this is a choice to recognize God's given order for the family, to respect your husband's leadership, and even encourage him to lead. And I think that's important. Because a healthy Christian relationship is talking about these boundaries. It's not just assuming these things are true and hoping that they all work out. A healthy relationship is a Christian couple talking about these things. About being led and about leading. It's totally okay for a husband to ask, in what ways would you have me lead you better? Or for a wife, in what ways do I not submit to your leadership? This is very healthy for a Christian couple to do. 
It's okay. If there's a little bit of conflict, it's much better than a little bit of conflict that nobody talks about. Some of you will find your role in the marriage relationship comes naturally. For others, you will find that it's completely contrary to how you feel. But we don't get to do everything that we feel like doing. Husbands are called to lead and wives to be led for the glory of God. That brings me to the last point. Christians honor God. Look with me again at verses 32 and 33. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I wanted to reread 32 again to help put 33 in context because wives respecting their husbands and husbands loving their wives ultimately again points to Christ's relationship to the church. And this is found throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as we've seen over and over. One of the best ways for a married couple to honor God is to actively be practicing these roles in their marriage. Just as our relationship with God works And it requires work, it requires upkeep, our marriages do as well. They require us to actively be doing these things. This doesn't just passively or even naturally happen. We have to fight against the sin in our lives, or it will be fighting you. You young people who will be thinking more and more about marriage as you age, notice that this teaching on marriage doesn't really speak about feelings. It speaks about action. These are things that we do. Marriage requires an active input on both participants for it to work. And it's not easy. Just like any battle with any sin is not easy. But done well, it honors Christ because it mirrors the relationship that He has with His covenant people. That even while we were yet His enemies... Even while we would have taken his throne, were we given the chance, he died for us. If you're here this morning and do not know Jesus, he is your Lord, whether you subject yourself to him or not. You are under his feet, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. If you believe that he is Lord and that God rose him from the dead, you can be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved today. For those of us in the church, let us then endeavor to work daily on our marriages. Husbands, leading your wives well. Wives, recognizing your husband's leadership is from the Lord and this to the glory of God forever. Let's go to him in prayer.